Well, good morning. I'm very thankful to be here with you again to worship our Most High God, to spend time in fellowship together, and hopefully to, to hear the Word of God. This morning, I have a particular topic in mind I want to talk about. Um, I'm going to talk about two of my favorite things, cupcakes and grace. What a better way to talk about than to smoosh them together into an analogy that will help serve us to understand and appreciate the grace and mercy of God that He has given to us. So if you'll indulge me for a moment, I'm going to talk about myself a little bit, which is not a great way to start for any public speaker, but it, it serves a point if you'll hang with me. A lot of you know me, how I grew up, where I grew up, how I was raised, but some of you don't. But I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up with parents who served the Lord. I grew up with both sets of grandparents that served the Lord. I grew up in a small town, not getting in too much trouble. I was a pretty good kid besides all the normal teenager stuff. Um, you know, growing up, I didn't carouse. I didn't, I didn't drink. I didn't smoke weed. I didn't cuss. I wasn't promiscuous. Um, I worked for my dad on a farm, so it was, probably had a lot to do with that. More than my character, I was just too busy to get into too much trouble. Um, I started uh, teaching um, the, the Bible when I was about 15 and a half. I got a really early start. Brother Bud Jones from Ada, Oklahoma, I remember he, he invited me over to Ada to Cottage Avenue Church of Christ to give a sermon on a Sunday afternoon, and I had never been more scared in my entire life than that first time. And I, I, was, like a, I was afraid to do it, but I was more afraid to say no, so I mumbled that I would do it, and then the dread started. But I've been teaching the Bible for a long time and have really in, in developed a love and a passion for it. But, you know, I, I grew up doing pretty well in college, pretty much the same. I stayed who I was and, you know, did some good things. And uh, I married a good woman, young, and we've got some pretty good kids. And, you know, I've shared the scriptures with people. I've baptized people into the kingdom of God. I've, I've traveled overseas to India with Trevor to to teach and to support the, the gospel work in India. Um, I try to serve the local church. I think I'm a pretty good guy. And whenever I start thinking about some of those things, I'm like, man, this guy's bragging about himself. <laughs> when I start to think about some of those things, it, it would be easy for me to say, you know, I do a lot for the Lord. He sure is lucky to have a guy like me who is willing to serve him and be as humble as I am. I don't know if you've ever, if you've ever heard the, the devil whispering that to you, that God sure is lucky to have you. And that all the good stuff that you've done, and all your works and accomplishments, and all your pedigree in the faith, and, and all the years of service that you've offered the Lord so graciously, right? And that it sure is a good thing that Jesus died for good people like you. Because we were doing so good, and what we needed was we just needed the blood of Christ to just kind of get us over the hump, right? Uh, we're pretty good folks, and thank goodness that Jesus died to get us over the hump so we could serve him, and, and then we could start piling on all those good works. And Yeah, you know, I started to think about that, because I think there's probably, I'm not the only one who has fallen prey to that kind of arrogant thinking. And as much as you know, I say all this good stuff about myself, I would, I would tell you, and people who know me really well will tell you, that I'm not, I'm not perfect. 
that I have a lot of struggles. I've got some pretty toxic character flaws. Seth and I were talking last night. I, I told him that one of my most toxic character flaws is procrastination. <laughs> and so I don't know if any, I'm sure there's nobody else out here who, who falls prey to that. You know, I started thinking about a, a cupcake. I know that's, that's kind of a random jump, but that's the way my random brain works. It's, it's almost like all my good works gets us and it fills that, that cup and that's the cake. And that the grace of Christ is kind of like that icing on top, right? That just really just seals the deal, right? Let's talk about that idea for just a moment. I've thought that my own righteousness was there and that God's grace gets me over the top and saves me and, I, and how grateful I am about all that. And I started to think about that idea and whether that was true, whether it was accurate, whether that was honoring to Christ. And there's a halo just because. Listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus said to those Jews who believed, now that's an important part here because Jesus is not talking to a hostile audience here. He's talking to people who believed in him. That's important to keep in mind as we understand what he's going to say. He said, if you abide in my word, then you're my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So Jesus was talking to people who had a conscience for the truth, who, was, who were believing what he had to say. And then he impressed upon them the importance of abiding in his word and the fact that the truth of his word is what would set them free. Okay? Continuing on, they answered him, We are Abraham's descendants, and we have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Okay, so this is kind of funny here. Jesus like, shall make you free. The implication that's pretty subtle here is that, hey folks, you're in bondage. And they got in a huff. They're like, we're not in bondage to anybody. It's kind of like when a when a, when a three-year-old, when you're trying to help them, and they're like, I can do it myself. <laughs> We're not been in bondage to anybody. We're Abraham's descendants. Now, they thought like Abraham because Abraham was their everything. Like, we're descendants of Abraham. We're special. We're heirs of the promise. We're good. We've not ever been in bondage to anybody. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, and he's like, trust me, folks, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, then you are free indeed. Jesus said, no, you're in bondage. Anybody who commits sin is a slave to it. We talked about that, I believe, the first night of the meeting. Whoever you obey is your master. And how many sins do we have to commit to be a slave to sin? Just one. Because then it's got its claws into us, right? We're contaminated. It's like if you've ever, I like cats, if you've ever held a kitten, and their claws are so sharp, and when you like hold one, and then it gets its claws into your T-shirt, and you're trying to pull it off, and it's pulling your shirt, and it hurts. That's how sin is. Sin is harder to put down than a kitten, because it gets its claws into you, and you just can't shake it loose. Jesus said here that if you commit sin, you're its slave. And that was probably a pretty distressing message to them. I mean, they were deluded on many levels. 
All they had to do was look 15 feet away and see the Roman garrison and know that they were definitely in bondage. And being a descendant of Abraham had no part of that. So it doesn't really matter who we are or where we've come from or how good we think our pedigree is or how many good works we imagine that we've done. If we've committed one sin, we are a slave. We are in the thrall of Satan. But Jesus said the good news is is that if you're in bondage, that you don't have to stay there because if the Son makes you free, you will be free completely. Let's look at Paul. Paul's a great example of this. In Philippians chapter 3, he kind of does what I did in the beginning. He said in verse, chapter 3, verse 3, We are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm more so. So Paul is making the point here. We, as the body of Christ, are the new circumcision. And when he says they're the circumcision, that's a euphemism for Israel, right? And he said, we are spiritual Israel. We are spiritually the new circumcision because we worship God in spirit. And because we know and understand that fact, our confidence in the flesh is zero. We don't. And then Paul says, but if anybody could, theoretically, have confidence in the flesh, it would be me. And he explains why. Because I was circumcised on the eighth day, the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He says, I know who my descendants are. My genealogy is clean, he says. That was a big deal to them. And that's why in the, in the, the rest of the New Testament writing, there's warnings against endless genealogies and all trying to prove who you are. Paul says, doesn't matter. He said, if anybody wants to stack up resumes, I'll put mine forth. Then he says, concerning the law, a Pharisee. Now, a Pharisee was a sect of Judaism that was pretty exclusive. And if you wanted to be part of the in crowd, then you had to do everything right. You had to follow the law. You had to keep up the appearances. You had to do all the stuff. And people who were considered Pharisees were like they were the folks who had it going on. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church is that I loved the word of God so much that I was willing to take this sect out here and try to stomp it out. Concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. Not that he was perfect, but Paul said, if anybody wanted to come at me with an accusation, they'd have a hard time because nobody was willing to do so. Blame couldn't be assigned to him. And I'd say, yeah, Paul, pretty swell guy. And then he flips it on us. He says, but what things were gained to me, and being a Pharisee was advantageous in that culture, offered him many advantages to be put forward in his faith, Whatever thing was gained to me, I have counted loss for Christ. Yes, indeed, I also account all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Paul said, all that I had, all that I had gained, the reputation that he had spent decades building through his own righteousness, his own efforts, he says, once I encountered the Christ... It was trash. It went in the garbage can. Because everything that he had done to be excellent on his own counted for nothing compared to the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus. And he said, I have suffered the loss of everything for that. What else is good here? He says, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, 
which is from the law, but which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, it's not my own righteousness. It's not what I did. Instead of, and he makes a contrast here, not my own righteousness, but the righteousness which is from God. It's a gift of God that's accomplished not through works, but through our faith. Our faith in what Christ has done on the cross for us. So let's talk about that for a little bit. I talked about that cupcake. And I actually have one here. Of course I do, right? Man, look at this beauty. It's vanilla. It's got like four feet of icing on top. It's got the multicolored sprinkles, kids. You know what I'm talking about. I just want to, would you mind? No, I'm not going to, but it's good. Our own righteousness, right, is how I've thought about it. And then God's grace. And then if we can imagine that these sprinkles are, I don't know, something good. I started to think about that idea. But the truth is, if Jesus said that we are a slave and in bondage to sin, and if Paul said that all the stuff that he did, which arguably is better than anything that I've done, and he said it was insufficient, and he counted that as garbage compared to what Christ has done, then I need to start seriously considering whether or not it's me who fills this cup. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 2 says, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power, the heir, the spirit, who now works in the sons of disobedience. See, see we were not even alive to do good. We were dead because of our trespasses and our sins. We didn't have the ability to add anything. You know, my, you just, you literally, we were dead. Spiritually, we couldn't. And who am I to think that a, that a dead man could do anything to contribute to my own salvation? It's preposterous in the extreme. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 9 says, For we were still without strength in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Without strength literally means sick, impotent, feeble, in a spiritual sense. What could we do? We were helpless to fix what we had messed up. Totally powerless to contribute anything to my own rescue. I don't know if you've ever felt sick, impotent, or feeble. Um, if there's any man out here who's ever had a cold, uh, we, you might be able to relate. If you ever get a man cold, most COVID was nothing. Man cold, now that's something, right? And all you can do is lay there. That feeling of not being able to do anything for yourself and wives, how frustrating that is. But we couldn't do anything. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, among whom also we were all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, 
just as the others. By nature, we were the children of wrath. We weren't better than anybody else. We conducted ourselves just like everybody else does. We followed our vain imaginations, our vain desires, the idols in our brains that we talked about. Children of wrath. We deserve the wrath of God. And here's where things start to turn up for us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God. This is where the story turns. We were dead, powerless, impotent, stuck, headed for wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of how great we were and how awesome we were. No, no, no. Because of His great love, with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in sins and trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And here's an important idea that I want you to consider. Is that God does not love you because of who you are. He didn't save you because of who you are. The truth is that God loves you because of who he is. has nothing to do with you, really. You didn't choose to be created. God chose to make you. You didn't do anything to make God love you while you were dead in your sins and your trespasses. God doesn't love you because of who you are. He loves you because who He is. And God is a God who keeps His word. He made a promise to Abraham, who the Jews were so proud of back in John 8, He made a promise to Abraham, and he said, Abraham, I'm going to give you a a nation. I'm going to make you and your name and a great people, and I'll give you a country to live in, and through you and your seed, Abraham, I'll bless all families of earth. That's your family too. Did you know that? It doesn't matter whether your family has loved God. You're the first person ever in your family line to serve God or to even think about it. It doesn't matter. God is blessing your family today through you. And if anybody did anything to try to nullify that covenant, it was Israel with their repeated adultery against the Lord, their idolatry, their rebellion and sinfulness. But God didn't let any of that change His counsel. He, kept his, he keeps His word. He kept His word. Because God loved Israel because of who He is. And He is a loving and gracious God who keeps His word. And I would argue this morning that because we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, really, we started from the bottom, and we have been made alive. So if we could take that analogy here of the part that makes us able to stand, this filling of the cup with that delicious vanilla cake is being made alive in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6 it gets even better. If this was an information, if this was an infomercial, I would say, but wait, there's more. If you order within the next 15 minutes, we'll send you these free steak knives. Ephesians 2 6, and he raised us up together. And made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness in Christ Jesus. So what this means essentially is that not only did God choose to make us alive in Him, but He also elevated us. 
The way I like to think about it is, if I have committed a crime, say I murdered somebody, and I go to court, and the judge, the judge's son feels so sorry for me that he says, you know what, I know that you're facing the death penalty, but you know what, I'll stand in for you. Which seems terribly unfair, but let's imagine a case where that could happen. That the judge's son says, I know that you're, you're going to suffer the death penalty for your murder, but I'll stand in for you. And as much as we might say, no, that's not fair, that's not right, the son says, but I love you and I want to do that for you. And the son does, does that. And now that would be an amazing story of, of love and mercy, correct? But then imagine a scenario where the judge is so impressed with the love that his son showed that not only does he allow you to be pardoned, but he adopts you into his family. Not, it wasn't good enough for God to be gracious enough to us to allow us to be pardoned from our sin. It wasn't good enough. Because he didn't just want people with which he could say, you know what, the debt is fulfilled. We can go our separate ways. You know, you know if you've ever paid off a loan, you know, the, the loan officer probably didn't invite you over for dinner that night just to say, hey, you're part of the family now. He'd say, we're square. Nice doing business with you. Adios, right? That's not good enough for God. He says, not only will I pardon you, but I will elevate you. And so in my thinking, this beautiful icing is kind of like, the, having cake is good enough for me. I love cake. But having icing is just even better. And not only did God love us enough to make us alive from our deadness and our trespasses and sins, but He heaps His grace upon us in the fact that He adopts us as His own. Romans chapter 8, verses 14, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And we can read into that the sons and daughters, the children of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba. There may be some of you this morning who have been adopted into the family that you belong to now. And you know what that's like to have a family who didn't, you didn't pick them. And you know, I didn't pick any of my kids. Like I took, I took what I got. <laughs> I would have picked you guys anyway. But to know that there is a family who came and saw you without parents and picked you. So you get to be in my family and not only that, you get to be joint heirs with all of my children. God has done the same for us. God didn't want people that He could be square with. He wanted children. That He loads His mercy onto us. Romans chapter 8, verses 15 says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs of God, joint heirs of God. With Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may be glorified together. When you think about an inheritance, I've heard a lot of terrible stories about families who experience brokenness and, 
and conflict. And then, you know, when it comes time, like when the parents of that family die and then the will gets read, people are sometimes shocked to say that somebody got cut out or somebody got given twice as much as this kid because they didn't like the lady they married or whatever it might be. And there's a lot of heartache about inequality in a will and who gets to be inheritance. And I would say that all of us, if we're thinking about things objectively, and God says, I'm going to put you in the will, you'd be like, I don't deserve it, but great. Am I getting like 1%? Because that would be fantastic. God says, no, you get equal shares well, all my children. And so I say, great. So all of us children get a share. And like, in Christ, your only begotten son, what share does he get? God's like, an equal share. Isn't it interesting to think about how that God desires to have a relationship with us that he has with his only begotten, joint heirs with Christ? And that's not that God will kind of push us off to side and say, you know, you know, this is my real son and these are my adopted kids. No. Glorified together. Raised up together to be part of his creation in that way. And I came to a conclusion about this, folks. That I couldn't do anything to make God love me more than he already did when he sent Jesus to die for me. Nothing I could do to make God love me anymore. And I quickly realized that getting the cake into this cup was me being a dead man to being simply alive again. And I realized that the icing on this cupcake was really God saying, it's not just good enough for you to be alive from the dead, but I want you elevated to an heir, a joint heir with my only begotten son, Jesus Christ. And so I'm thinking about how do I fit into this picture? Well, if I didn't earn it, and I can't contribute to it, and it's all the work of God, where do I fit in here? I came to the conclusion, folks. Here am I. I'm an empty cup. This is the part that most folks would throw away. It's just here to be filled. Kind of humbling. What's your job in the scheme of redemption? Is it to try to impress God? To try to make Him love you more with all the good that you do? To bargain with Him? To try to strike a deal? No. You're an empty cup. The empty cup sits in that frame in the baking sheet, and its job is only to receive. To receive what's already been prepared. To receive what's already been given. And to become what the baker wants it to be. So that's me right there. The empty cup. And Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved. 
through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Can you boast? Paul couldn't boast. I can't boast. And the reason I can't is because we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Look, it's a gift. And it's not that we aren't involved in the process of reaching out to take and receive and be receptive of that gift. We absolutely are. We'll talk about that just for a moment. But we're the workmanship of God. Who did the work? It's Christ. Not us. I can't boast that I've been saved. I can be thankful. Trevor talked about the sin of ingratitude in his prayer this morning. Far be it from me to be ungrateful to God or have any illusions of my own value and worth in this process other than to be the empty cup that gratefully receives the work of Christ in my life to bring me from a dead sinner to a living heir because God has prepared ahead of time that we should do this. So our good works, are you saying that we shouldn't be involved in good works? That that doesn't count for anything? Don't we love these sprinkles, folks? That's why I like to think about it. All the, everything that really matters has already been done for me. And my good works that I put on top of that, I like these beautiful rainbow-colored sprinkles. <laughs> if I could be so silly to talk about that. The job is really just to kind of make it look good. You could probably do a blind taste test, and nobody could tell me what a sprinkle tastes like. But that makes it look good. And I would say that when we exercise good works in faith, according to the Word of God, that what we do is we make it look good. We validate it. This is not on your slides, but in the book of Titus chapter 2, we have a list of good works that we ought to be engaged in as the body of Christ. Titus chapter 2, uh, we want to start in verse, verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, and patience. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. But they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. So we have this idea that the Word of God could be blasphemed if Christians aren't engaged in the works that the Bible says to. Verse 6, Likewise, exhort the young men to be like-minded, or sober-minded, in all things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering or stealing, but showing all good fidelity. Why? Why should we be obedient to the authority that God has set up? Why should we behave like this? And Paul makes a case here that the reason that we all display these good works that Christ has commanded, the good works that Jesus has prepared beforehand that we should walk in, verse 10, part B, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Adorn means to 
to dress up like an ornament, to prepare like a, like a bride for her groom, to make beautiful, to garnish, to decorate. That's our job, folks. We can't do anything to make God love us more than when Christ died for us. We can't make ourselves any more saved or elevate our position. But what we can do is faithfully receive the gift of grace that's been given to us. And because our gratitude for God, for what He has done, we can work. And the works that have been planned beforehand to decorate, to adorn, to make the gospel look great to the world that needs it. That's our job. And to be an empty cup. There's our good works sprinkled on. That was, that was a different cupcake, not as good as this one. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, a passage we already, or an idea that we've already referenced last night was about we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Now you might say, that's great news, and that makes me feel good. But what's the practical implication? And there's one really simple takeaway here. And I don't know who needs to, say, needs to hear this, but we're going to talk about it. There's a lot of pressure. If we feel like we have to make half of this cupcake ourselves, isn't there? Have you ever doubted that you're saved? Have you ever doubted the grace of God? That said, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not certain. I don't know. There's a, there's a doubt. I know that I've obeyed the gospel. I know that I've received the gift of Christ, but there's always that doubt that the devil whispers to us and he says, you're not good enough. You're not good enough. You're still not good enough. You're never going to be good enough. It's not true. It's for other people. It's not for you. You've done too much. That's quite a burden. The good news is is that that burden is not yours to bear. I'm going to reassure you that you're not good enough. But I am going to reassure you that Jesus was. He was good enough to fill your empty cup. And God was gracious enough to elevate you to his level. To make you a son or a daughter forever. I don't know about you, but if God was going to go through all that trouble, if He was going to take all that effort, sacrifice so much, make you so many promises, would He not keep them? Have you ever worked on a project, built something amazing, and then because you saw one imperfection, you took it to the backyard and burned it to the ground? No, we don't do that to things we love. We work on them. We bolster them. We support them. We work with them because it's something that we've invested our time and our love into. We work on it. And God is not in the habit of throwing away His children. He works on them, just like He's working on me. So this morning, if you've been laboring under the burden of thinking you had to cook the cupcake yourself, you don't. God's already done it for you. You're an empty cup. It's your job to receive. It's your job to be grateful. It's your job to live in good works, not because you're afraid you're going to hell, but because you're confident that you're going to heaven. 
That's our job. Relieve yourself of the burden of thinking you have to be good enough because that ship has sailed. And trust in the, in the marvelous grace of Christ that he died for us. And he gives us treasure in these jars of clay that we call a body that we know that the excellency is not of us. This morning, it's your job to receive. Have you received Christ today? The scripture tells us that the way that we receive that, and there's a lot of people who will disagree with, you know, or say that, well, you just need to receive Christ into your heart, or you just need to say a simple prayer, and that's enough to get it done. But the scripture says that we have to approach God a certain way that mimics what Jesus did for us on the cross. First, we've got to hear the gospel, which we've heard in some sense today, and many of you have already heard it. But if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he did the atoning work for your sin on the cross when he died obediently to God, that's good enough. Are you willing to confess that fact, to stand before this audience and say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, confident? Are you willing to repent and say that I know that I used to live according to my lusts and my passions and the the figments of my imagination, but I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to turn the leadership of my life over to Christ and the Spirit of God. And are you willing to enter this water of baptism? To receive baptism? People say, you know, you can't be baptized because that's earning your salvation. That's doing good works toward that. Look, out of all the things I've just said, baptism is the only thing you can't do for yourself. You've got to receive it. You can't get it. Are you willing to go underneath that water like Christ died to sin? Our our repentance is our dying to sin. And when we are buried or immersed in that water. It's like when he went down to the grave. And then when we raise up and that water washes over us, then we're alive to live a new life in Christ full of good works and mercy. If you're willing to imitate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in baptism this morning, the Bible says that's where we meet the blood of Christ that washes us and regenerates us to live a new life for him. If you're willing to do that, we can help. This morning... If you have been struggling, if you doubt your salvation, if you're worried that you're not good enough, or if you're struggling with something that is seriously a barrier between you and God, and you know that your standing is not right today because you've left the Lord, you've abandoned Him, and you would like to come back to Him, then we can pray for you this morning that you would be restored to Him. The church stands ready to serve you this morning. So if there is anyone who needs to respond to the gospel invitation this morning, I invite you to do that while we sing the song of invitation.